Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Scripture reading is going to be from Philemon chapter 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and our fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be compulsion, as it were, but voluntary, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me, but if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand, I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you, Thank you so much for your singing, Karen, for playing our speaker this morning, one of our own, our brother Don Pell, and we're happy to have him this morning, and we're going to invite him up right now to share what the Lord has laid on his heart. Brother Don, please. Good morning. I hope you kept your place in the book of Philemon because that's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. The book of Philemon. This is an interesting story. It has three main characters. First of all, there's this man whose name is Onesimus, a slave of Philemon, who apparently stole from his master and escaped to the city of Rome, where Paul was held as prisoner. 
He becomes a believer as a result of Paul's ministry from that particular place. As I mentioned before, when we were in Rome, I had a chance to see that place where Paul was held prisoner. We couldn't go down inside of there, but nonetheless, we were able to stand outside and see. It wasn't all that far from the Colosseum. Now, once a, an, a believer, Onesimus, becomes very helpful to Paul in his ministry. That introduces us to a man whose name is Philemon. Philemon, of course, is the man described by Paul who has love and faith toward the Lord Jesus, toward all the saints. Perhaps he was an elder in the church that is described as being held in his house. Might mention, too, when we think of slavery, we think of our own South in years past, but it wasn't uncommon when you were in debt to become a slave, to excuse your particular indebtedness. And then, of course, we have Paul the Apostle, and now he's making an appeal to Philemon, and he wants to send Onesimus back, and he offers that he would pay him. The key verse is found there. Take a look here. The key verse is found in verse 18. It goes like this. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Uh, the ESV and the NSCB puts it this way. Charge that to my account. It's a Greek word that simply means to reckon in set to one's account, lay to one's chart, and it introduces us to a very important doctrine in Scripture. And that doctrine is imputation, to impute, to charge to one's account. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, puts it this way, For until the law was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Each man has an account with Almighty God. An account is usually a place where charges and credits are placed. This morning I'm going to try to use an accounting analogy. Some of you know I was a business teacher in years past and taught accounting in the schools and later on wrote some accounting software of my own, but it had been a lot of years, so I had to brush up on some of these basic accounting principles. But if we think of the Lord as the chief accountant who has an account with each man and woman. Now, a little bit of accounting uh, verbiage for you. Charges in accounting, we refer to those as debits. Debit is simply the left-hand side of an account in double-entry accounting. Payments are often referred to as credits, and credits go on the right side of an account. There's, uh, when I had my first accounting class, the instructor told us a story that has probably been repeated down through the years. Talked about an accountant who every morning would open the top door of his desk look inside, read it, close it, and go about his work. He did that for years. Boy, they were just dying to know what the world he was looking at. And so once he passed away, they had access to the desk and to the drawer, and they opened the drawer, and what do you suppose it said? 
debits on the left, credits on the right. He wanted to make sure that each day he was doing the proper entry when he was making his accounting entries. Now, there are three basic types of accounts when it comes to the accounting equation, when it comes to our equity. First of all, there are the assets. Those are the things that we own. Then there are the liabilities, and those are the things that we owe. And then there is the net, which is the equity, and that's our net worth. So the accounting equation goes like this. Assets equals liabilities plus equity, or proprietorship. Or putting it another way, equity equals assets minus liabilities. Now, it's interesting in the accounting world, debits and credits represent increases or decreases based on the kind of account it is. If it's an asset and you debit it, you want to increase it, you debit it. On the other hand, if you want to increase a liability, you're going to place a credit to that account. So you have to be conscious of what categorized account you're using. God the Creator has an equity account for each person. And as the CPA of the affairs of men, he keeps a perfect accounting of man's condition. And so he makes some entries in our account. First of all, God charges or debits each man with Adam's sin. This initial charge has to do with man's state rather than his behavior. This is based on the doctrine of the depravity of man. Some people interpret that doctrine to mean man is as bad as he can be. And we look around us and we say, well, is that totally true? What about your neighbor who's kind, moral, generous, honest, considerate, helpful? Is he as bad as he can be? Perhaps not. You might compare him to some people who are not so kind, not so generous, and not so helpful. You see, here's what the depravity of man really means. Man is as bad off as he can possibly be. Even the nice guys, even the kind guys, they are as bad off as they possibly can be. It's based on God's estimation of man rather than man's estimation of man. The writer to the Romans puts it this way. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death passed and spread to all men, because all have sinned. And later on to the Galatian believers, Paul writes, but the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. As an unbeliever continues to sin, his equity account on the debit side gets larger and larger. The debt keeps piling up, and there's no man-made remedy. It's a death sentence. The wages of sin is death. One cannot try to balance his account by omitting charges. 
pretending that he has not sinned. There's an expression in accounting that goes like this. Figures don't lie, but liars can figure. You ever heard that one? (laughs) Figures don't lie, but liars, they cook the books. When you cook the books, that's exactly what you're doing, aren't you? You're presenting figures, and they look good, but they're based on a false premise, and they lie to you. You cannot lie to Almighty God. You can present all the figures and the nice deeds and the works you want, but you cannot lie to him. The writer of Hebrews makes that real clear. Here's what he writes. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give what? Account. There it is. We must give account. He's keeping a record. There's no resource for a loan that would satisfy God's payment. Gold and silver don't cut it because their value cannot be sustained. You ever hear about inflation? Been to the supermarket lately? What you bought a year ago is going to cost you a whole lot more today than it did a year ago. Ever watch the stock market? Oh, there's a big sellout, down 500 points. And the next thing you know, a couple of months later, it's a resurge, and they're up again. And up and down it goes. Very flaky, the world markets. I remember I purchased my first home for $22,000. I challenge you to buy a home in Claremont for $22,000. You probably can't buy a shed and Claremont on a decent piece of property for $22,000. So God has a redemptive plan. It's a twofold plan. First of all, he must pay off the debt, thereby balancing man's equity account. Then he must provide man with a positive equity before Almighty God. And this window of opportunity to accomplish that is available to every person. And it has, down through the years, been quite an impressively large window of opportunity. Peter talks about that window of opportunity when he writes this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some might count slackness, but is long-suffering, ah, the day of grace, toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So now in order to cancel this debt and to accomplish these accounting things, you have to have some capital. You can't just get stuff out of the air and start making accounts unless you're trying to cook the books. It required something that would address the issues of life and death. Where are you going to, what bank are you going to go? to deal with the issues of life and death. It must be life-sustaining. And remember, way back in the book of Leviticus, and it's too bad some of our scientists didn't read that back when they did some bloodletting. The life of the flesh is where? There it is, in the blood, right? Aren't you glad you had a bypass surgery, Mike? Life of the... They didn't do any bloodletting, did they? I didn't think so. No, if anything, they might have even given you more blood if you had had it needed. So the life of the flesh is in the blood. There's where it is. There's the issue of life. That's, that's God's 
medium of exchange. See, first of all, it had to be flawless. Cannot be, be subject to contamination. It must be precious. It cannot decline in value. It must have unlimited value. It has to be sufficient for the sins of the entire world. It must be efficacious, defined by Merriam-Webster as having the power to produce a desired effect. And it must be available to the entire world. The medium of exchange needed to reconcile sinners to God could only come from one source. And we celebrated that source this morning in our first meeting. We passed the emblems reminding us of that one source. God's holy, spotless son. He was God's spotless lamb whose blood would be shed. And remember when John saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God's medium of exchange is precious because it's all sufficient. Peter writes to it, or refers to it rather, as the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And John writes that not only is it unlimited, but it is powerful and efficacious, having the power to produce the desired result. He writes this, He himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction of divine justice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the whole world. Now here's the big question. Why in the world would God do this? Why in the world would God do this? John in his epistle, I think, gives us one of the answers. He writes, God is love. God is love. And the God who is love, so loved. So loved that he gave his only begotten son. You see, God wants sons conformed to the image of his dear son. John writes, but as many as received him, ah, they became sons. To them gave he the authority or the power or the right to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. And the writer of Hebrews expresses it again in a little different way. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons, there it is, sons to glory. That's what he wants, bringing sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And John is overwhelmed when he writes, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the what? Sons of God. And the writer Romans writes, For whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So now God executes 
Love drew the plan, grace brought it down to man. Don't you love that refrain? Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Grace made God's love operable. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at the place called Calvary. Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, he provided God with the medium of exchange needed to make two more capital entries. Their condition, of course, upon man's acceptance. He must confess with his mouth the Lord Jesus. He must believe in his heart that God has raised him from the dead. If he refuses, his account will remain lopsided, filled with a debt that he never, never can repay. John in his gospel writes, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So now, transaction number one, canceled debt. First, God removes the penalty of sin in man's account by placing a credit or a payment in his account, removing the debt. But we must have another entry. Then he debits, charges Christ with man's sin-laden debt, imputed debt. Our sins were laid on him, Isaiah writes. Now the first act of imputation has taken place. Charge that to my account. Isaiah predicted these transactions. He wrote, he was wounded for our transactions. Transgressions, rather. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Peter explains it even in more detail. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. So now the debt is canceled. But now man's account is what? Zero. That's canceled. Now he's a zero. Now, who wants to be a zero before God? I don't want to be a zero before God. I don't think anybody wants to be a zero before God. So now we need another transaction. Positive standing transaction. Because, because Christ paid the penalty for man's sin and bore its judgment, he charges or debits the righteousness of Christ secured on the cross, and he credits man's account with that very same righteousness. And so now you have a positive equity account of the righteousness of Christ. Now man is cleared of the penalty of sin, but then he also has a positive balance of righteousness that allows him to live victorious over the very practice of sin and have fellowship with Almighty God. Because of Abram's faith, the scriptures tell us it was accounted for him for righteousness, because he believed. And then the writer goes on to tell us, that was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. So, delivered up because of our offenses, entry number one. 
raised because of our justification, entry number two. And then Paul says, here now, here I am. The transaction's completed. I'm found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And to the Corinthians, Paul writes, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So here we have it. Imputation, an act of Almighty God. Forgiveness of sins, debt charged to Christ. Freedom from the penalty of sin. A righteous standing before Almighty God. Believer credited with the righteousness. Victory now over the very practice of sin. And eventually, freedom from the very presence of sin at a coming day. Peter puts it this way. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's a song. I actually heard it not too long ago. I was really kind of surprised. It was written by Frank M. Graham in 1902. And it, the title of that song is The Old Account Was Settled. Anybody ever remember that? Let me read it to you. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'm going to read it to you. There was a time I know, when in the book of heaven, an old account was standing for sins yet unforgiven. My name was at the top and many things below. I went into the keeper and settled long ago. The old account was large and growing every day. For I was always sinning and never tried to pay. But when I looked ahead and saw such pain and woe, I said I would settle it. I settled it long ago. When at the judgment bar, I stand before my king. And he the book will open. He cannot find a thing. Then will my heart be glad. Will tears of joy will flow because I had it settled and settled long ago. O oh, sinner. Seek the Lord, repent of all your sin. For thus he has commanded if you would enter in, and then if you should live a hundred years below, even here you'll not regret it, you settled long ago. And here's how the refrain goes. Long ago, long ago. Yes, the old account was settled long ago. And the record's clear today, for he washed my sins away when the old account was settled long ago. I trust that you settled the old account long ago and are enjoying an imputed righteousness that comes from none other than Christ himself. May the Lord bless these thoughts to your care and keeping today. Father, again, we're thankful for this beautiful doctrine of how you impute the righteousness of Christ to our account and you erase and remove that debt of sin that we could never 
never repay. And how good it is that many of us around us can say, oh, we settled that. We settled that long ago. We've received the righteousness by faith in Christ Jesus. We just pray that these thoughts that have been shared this morning might be a real help and care and nourishment to God's people this morning. If there's anyone who hasn't settled the account today, we pray your Holy Spirit will speak to that person about their account, their equity account with Almighty God as this debt is piling up day by day and hour by hour and minute by minute. We just pray that your Holy Spirit will convict such a one about their debt. And now, Lord, we just commit these things to your keeping and care, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.